Hey everyone, you're listening to The Tam Revolution, where we believe that focusing on quality over volume and being different, not better, is the right way to hire the best humans and build stronger teams. To help you do this, I go behind the scenes with forward-thinking recruiters, employer brand experts, and people leaders making a huge difference to their organization. I'm your host, Tom Hackfall, and in today's episode, I'll be speaking with Glenn Donaldson. Glenn's president and chief customer officer of IntelliHR, a publicly listed Australian HR tech business that develops leading-edge cloud-based people management software. He's a super well-respected figure in the HR tech space, a speaker at Disrupt HR, and just an all-round awesome guy. Super excited to dig into the evolution of the HR tech market with him today, so let's just get straight going. Glenn, thanks so much for your time today. Hi, thank you. I appreciate the the offer. <laughs> no worries. Look, world's shortest intro, I think always keen to kind of set the scene and dig a bit deeper into you as a person and understand kind of how you got to where you are. So can you give us a bit of background on your career journey today? Yeah, for sure. And it's always awkward, isn't it, when you hear your own sort of intros read out to you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Look, I think you nailed it on the head. You know, I was born and bred in, in Australia, grew up around Brisbane area, and that's ironically enough where the company was born that I work at now in HR, people management software platform that's now globally across the world. But we've got three offices now spread out across Toronto in the UK and also in Australia, but also in over into New Zealand. But yeah, I guess, you know, in terms of my background, mostly within that HR area, I was always interested in psychology, funnily enough, human psychology and how people work with each other and how they understand each other. I was one of those moody teenagers you know i i wasn't listening to blink 182 i was more on the nice. taylor swift side very good, being very good. Honest, Tom. but I, I fell into that psychology pathway and then that really led into business management through university and studies and so on and then um, funnily enough I, I actually was studying and, and trained to be a teacher as well and it ended up you know cultivating this weird mixture of skill sets you know funnily enough it worked i feel like employees now in businesses are just as bad or need sort of the attention that you give a grade five class, right? <laughs> like like there, there's the different type of parallels there. But, you know, I, I also had a very customer-focused background. So I think that all combined together really brought me into HR. And that's where I stepped into more of a consulting type of work and role with a bloke called Rob Grimage, who uh, I ironically then found in HR and brought me over. Relatively grown up with the company from there. And because it was just us early days, you know, the two of us really working out a lot of the processes from sales and marketing and, you know, building a product, building a software application, we in turn had to be HR for the company. And so that's kind of evolved from there. And I guess that's what's led me here sitting in front of you. You know, super interesting background and always good when people don't have like that sort of conventional route to, to the role that they're doing now. I, I think you and Rob sort of setting up in telly and going and doing all of those bits and bobs and sort of the journey that the company's gone on, like stepping back a bit, why set up a HR software company at all, right? Like the people management space is super congested. You're out in Australia, things are, you know, super busy. You could have started anything in the HR tech space. Why build a HRIS or a people management solution? It's really funny because if you if we talk to anyone in Australia, I think they understand why. If we talk to people overseas, they're used to that market being saturated. But back then, you know, we're talking 2014, 2015, there wasn't actually a lot in the Australian market. And to give you a little bit more context there, when we were talking to businesses early days, we were saying to them, you know, we're a SaaS product. And they would say, you're, you're, you're sassy. And we're like, no, 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 we're a SaaS product. And they, they actually just didn't understand what software as a service was. So we really had to educate the Australian market or who we were working with in the Australian market, which gave us a lot of confidence and 
really laid the groundwork for taking the product to where we needed to. So I think that was probably what gave us the confidence. The other area was just the lack of analytical data. The products that we built and the methodology that we've always kind of held between the entire company is, you know, what people data organizations need and what you can actually do with data to make organizations better for their employees. And so that mantra really stuck with us and it's really helped breed out this amazing type of approach to not only at a software level and what we're building, but also just how we see and think of HR and and watching that evolve, particularly of COVID, but just watching that evolve over time has been quite rewarding. No, that's cool. And look, preaching to the converted on the data and analytics side stuff, right? And we're going to dig deep there later because there's lots of things we can learn from you there. I think before we do that, though, just like another question on the, the sort of positioning in the market. So like, obviously, you talk about the, the market being undersaturated in Australia versus, you know, comparable markets elsewhere and that, that you felt there was an opportunity. Obviously, the business has sort of grown up in Australia, but now, as you said, it's super global in Toronto, in the UK and, and, and other markets also. How do you think like growing up in the Australian market has kind of impacted the way you've rolled out internationally and sort of what advantages and disadvantages do you think that's brought with it? Well, I, I think, you know, it, we, it felt like a saturated market overseas and an unsaturated market in Australia. But I think now, you know, it's, it's quite an even playing field. Australia is definitely caught up in that software realm. For us, we, we never saw ourselves as an Australian-based company. We, from day one, said that we will go global with this product and, and the ideas and the thinking that we had. And you, you have to understand, we did a lot of research as well, you know, going to different um, conferences and meetups and, and talking to other vendors and whatnot overseas and just learning about how and why they shaped their product. And there always seemed to be some type of gap out there or, or and, and we actually spoke with a lot of HR people and there was always a lot of missing pieces for them to do their job but the other part was also it just constantly felt like HR was in the backseat and it just wasn't being strategic so that all pulled together and, and really shaped the funnel of, of what we've been doing for the past you know uh, seven years now gosh it, it feels like two years ago <laughs> so that was really kind of the driver there was that we could see in the market that it was evolving and shaping and although, yes, it is it is a saturated market, it, it kind of always has been, particularly in, in North America, I think what we're finding more and more is the tools are evolving and, and changing in line with what employees need or HR needs. But now we're starting to obviously see that big shift towards what leaders need to cultivate their teams. And HR as a department is very much so changing. I think everyone now does a form of HR it's quite a deep level to what's been traditionally done in businesses. No, sure. It makes that. And to be clear, the, the commentary on saturated markets is no way a criticism, right? Like we, we run an ATS, for God's sake, it's, it's just as bad, if not worse. So, so like I agree with the methodology. I think it's super interesting to see kind of how you thought about that and how you framed that in your minds when you went and set that up. I think moving on, you know, you come back to this point about data and analytics and you've kind of talked more broadly about the HR landscape changing and everybody playing a role there now. Again, we'll dig much deeper there. I think Let's just go straight to analytics there, because I think this is really interesting to us, right? Like we speak to lots of folks that roll out ATSs or other HR technology systems, and we try and get them to think in a much more kind of data-driven way. And sometimes we find that sort of transitional period quite difficult, right? Like a lot of the people we speak to in the HR arena, data scientists, and haven't spent a lot of time thinking about things in a data-driven way. They've kind of overvalued their gut feel. How have you kind of taken people on a journey, and how are you thinking about data in the product? It's a really good question and, and, you know, I could really start to unpack that. I think we've also had a lot of challenges there, if I'm being upfront and honest. I think the HR 
people that we worked with back in 2014, 2015 are very different to the HR people that we're working with now in, in 2022. And that's just really from a maturity within their job and a sophistication of what data they can capture now and how they should use that data. You know, rolling back to 2014, people were worried about how they could produce an attrition score. Now they're worried about predictiveness around attrition and, and being in front of it. So I think HR is starting to get there. I still do think there's a big gap in terms of their sophistication around data. And, and I think at the, at the end of the day, HR does need to be data scientists. They need to be conscious of what sort of data is out there. For us, how we really started to tackle that was probably twofold. So one, really in from an implementations perspective and how you're actually breaking down a system like you know ourselves. And, and there's lots of platforms out there that do data analysis and, and reporting and so on. But just how you're actually breaking that down and implementing it was a really key big focus, but also probably more on the education piece. So things like sentiment analysis, um, you know, producing AI insights around even just um, qualitative data. You know, if someone's answering a particular way, is there a sentiment behind there that you should be paying attention to? You've got a thousand headcount business, you can't be reading everyone's check-ins, you can't be reading everyone's engagement surveys, those sort of things. So the tools have become a lot more advanced. I think HR are now relying on that, but I think the next step for them, which is one that we're really focused in on helping and educating around, is how to actually do something with that data and, and enable your leaders as well in that sort of space. No, that makes sense. I think that's the thing, right? Like what we come across a lot is, you know, this kind of, I'm going to bluntly call it unconscious incompetence, but it's like you don't know what you don't know, right? And so it's great to have this massive pool of data and great that we're gathering all this stuff in the background. But I think the challenge that we see is not so much gathering the data, which is hard in of itself, but somewhat a solved problem, but it's inference, right? It's like, what can I do with these insights and how can I scale this up so that I actually go and do something as a result of it? And I think we in our own products have tried to sort of separate you know, we speak to people and we say, what reporting and insights do you want? And they say, well, in our previous system, we used to have this Excel spreadsheet that got produced that had some lines in it. Can you give us that? And we go, yes, but you don't really just want that. What you actually want is insights, right? You want us to tell you this has happened and this is the outcome or this is working because of this. And so we've tried to go through this process of sort of quite linearly, like simplifying lots of things and giving people proactive reports we think they'd find useful. How are you guys thinking about that sort of translation exercise? Yeah, and I, I think you hit it on the head there. Unconscious competence, it's a funny one, or incompetence, I should say. It's a funny one there because I've seen that play out a lot and just trying to get that bridge between HR's understanding of I'm not doing the things in my role that I probably should be doing and I'm not paying attention to the trends or the insights that are within my employee set that I could be. And, and I don't think it's them. I, I really don't. You know, A lot of people can sometimes see that as almost a, a form of HR being lazy, and it's not that. We all know that. HR absolutely run off their feet. But I think it's just around how we're starting to provide them the tools and, and very simplistic tools, but with very sophisticated data. One organization I was working with, um, and you just sparked it there as you, as you made your comment before, we did an analysis around attrition data. So it was a 300 headcount business. And they had an attrition score of about 10%. So for their industry, that was relatively healthy. They were happy with that. You know, all the data is loaded in. We've looked at it and they've gone, yep, that's great. We can see that 10%. What we then started to apply when we worked through that was that they actually had 60% of that 10% was attributed to a particular department. So a department was turning over 60% of its staff 
we drilled into that more. It was really like one location. We could drill in and see the manager that was actually attributed to that. Then obviously overlaying offboarding data, so qualitative analysis data starting to pull in and looking at why people are leaving, you know, starting to attach that to engagement scores or looking at general satisfaction or, or wellness, you know, data pulling into there. And as we started to create this picture, we were starting to find an actual narrative around bullying. And there was a bullying incident within this department. Now, because of the size of the business and the size of the HR team, they just didn't have time to do that level of analysis at their board level. They were just giving them that 10% number and saying, here you go, this is our what metric we're following and, and we're happy with that number. But when they actually drilled into their data and, and broke it down, that effectively allowed them to see that there was a real pain point there and a real issue within their turnover, they actually ended up costing that out and it was well over 200000 that it was costing the business. So there was a lot of learnings out of that that you know we experienced and that organisation experienced. And it's just how deep does your data go and how deep will HR go with their data to a point where it's effective. In that specific example, is that you as a team at Intelli digging into that data proactively with the client or is that you just making it really easy for the client to do that themselves? Yeah, and this is probably to something you mentioned earlier on. It was us working with them and I think there was a lot of reluctance there to start with because they'd seen that shiny 10% and they were happy to just stay there and we were like, well, you know what, let's do what we're here to do and let's drill into that. And, you know, you can see that these things are sometimes a little bit foreign to HR. They're not used to that sort of depth of analysis. But I think at the end of the day, that's what their job is. That's what they're here for. They're, they're people first. And so we can take away that analysis level. But then it's really what are they going to do with that data or what are they going to do to make that data informed decision, which was a key one. But, yeah, it was definitely a, a learning on our side in terms of how we better communicate or educate organizations in, in using that type of tooling. Yeah, but that's awesome, right? And I love the fact that it was a bit of a loaded question. I hope, I hope you said what you'd say, because I think it's great that you guys are doing more than just the software piece. I know that obviously you're all just, your actual end delivery is this great piece of software, but like we do the same thing, right? Like we're always quite, quite critical of folks who just throw software at problems in hopes that it solves them, because the reality is that you could have given your client in this example the data but they would never have dug deep enough they didn't want to lift the lid lift the lid on the problem they didn't necessarily have the skills or the capacity to dig deep enough to really uncover the root cause there i think it's great that you did that a for obvious reason helping them in this specific circumstance but b because it helps you then improve the product in the future to help other organizations identify similar challenges and it's fundamentally just pattern recognition right and i think the best parts of our product have come out of those nitty gritty conversations, looking at specific problems with specific clients and then going, right, surely other people have this problem. How can we try and like proactively unearth this data? Because you've got to, you know, we're, we're all gathering huge amounts of stuff. We have to be quite intelligent about where we look first. Right. And I think when we have these sorts of experiences, it's really helpful in kind of shaping that product experience. So super, super positive. A thousand percent. And, and, you know, we were working with organizations through COVID who, you know, had furloughed or laid off a lot of their staff and then through engagement scoring or, or happiness scoring and those sort of things, 90% of the organisations were unhappy. When you're in HRC and you have that type of data surfaced to you, what do you do and where do you start? And I think exactly that. It's Sometimes it's a skills gap within the HR team, but I think that gap is definitely being developed or that skill is definitely being developed the more that, you know, HR is working through the pandemic. I hate talking about the pandemic. I feel like we've talked about it for nonstop in two years, but it's worth mentioning, I guess. But I think HR has learned a lot through these past 
two and a half years. And I think that's going to really shape how they understand and unpack their data because I do think, and I saw it, they were handed a lot of very difficult scenarios in data format. To And, you know, as you said, they lifted the hat off. What do you do with that? And where do you start? And, and it was a challenge. It's just great. I think we're seeing the, you know, I also don't particularly want to cover off pandemic because we talk about it every day, all day, right? But like the the notion of like the composition of our HR team changing, I think is one of the positives that have come out of this. And I think we've seen this trend kind of happen naturally anyway over the past 10 years where we've seen recruitment teams sort of bifurcate and there's been a recruitment marketer or there's been a specific talent acquisition team and, the, uh, you know, like people are specialized more. I think what's been great now is to see a more recruitment marketing and employer branding and kind of consultancy type people come into that HR frame. But also we're now sort of starting to see people analytics and people ops and data people and analysts coming into that space, especially at the large organizations, to really focus on digging into this data. And obviously having the tools that they need to do that is awesome. And I think the thing for us at Pinpoint, and it sounds like it's the same for you, is like we try and look at like how can we kind of democratize access to that data. So it's great when you've got Workday, and there's a million people in your organization, and you've got 20 analysts that sit there all day just analyzing that data. But how can we learn from what they're doing and kind of bake that into the product linearly so organizations that haven't got that scale or that budget can still unearth those same levels of insights, at least in part, right? So great that kind of it seems we're on the same page in that regard. I think before we talk about a bunch of other stuff you know, in the sort of implementation space and, and, and otherwise. I just want to touch on bias, right? Like we care a lot about diversity and inclusion and bias and unconscious bias and things like that here. And I think we've spoken to lots of people and we've all read the stories where everybody's sort of really positive about gathering data, but also sometimes worry that that data can help introduce bias or it can teach automation to do the wrong things or kind of permeate existing problems. Like how do you guys think about removing bias when it comes to people, data and analytics? We think about it a lot and we've built a lot of, I guess, frameworks in to really accommodate and not go too far. And I guess, you know, there was a stage there where we were looking at personality and matrices within the, the product. And, and we took a real step back and went, oh, hold on a minute, what's this actually introducing into a product that for the market and, and where businesses are at at this point in time might not actually be ready for what personality data compared to performance data, compared to turnover and so on could actually do. We definitely held the brakes on there, but I guess for us, it's something that comes up quite commonly. And, you know, you've got organizations that are doing massive data collections around DNI and, you know, looking at their attrition data or the turnover data now at a gender representation or, you know, different age demographics or, or whatever it actually is. So these insights are coming out now. And so I think that that was a really big focus for us to start with was how can we at least surface the data first? And that was obviously challenging at an aspect of, you know, across the globe and across the different industries, everyone captures data differently and everyone wants to process that data differently. But for us, we really tried to keep it back to a standard core. And, you know, even around our predictive side, so this amount of gender is more likely to turn over because of these reasons or people within this location with this age demographic tend to perform higher or lower. It's about finding those sort of insights that stay relatively neutral in terms of how it's processed at the first level and then looking at a later stage where we actually provide recommendations based on that data. And, you know, for, for me personally, I've seen so much internal bias come into play when you know, working with them on the product and looking at the analytics data. And I don't think people can help it. You know, they'll see a particular stat and they'll go, oh, yep, that's because of Tim. Or, yep, that's because I know, you know, Jane and Tony don't like each other and that's particularly why that team isn't performing. 
I don't think it's as cut and dry as that, but it's it's really, I think that in a particular area is going to be a challenge for us when we step into our leaders because we're starting to see the market shift towards, and I think this is genuinely HR's next big challenge, is what do your leaders have access to data-wise? What tools do your leaders have? I think HR is starting to really let go of a lot of those processes and tools that they've held close to them and particularly data. So your leaders now are going to start seeing their own insights and information around, well, why is my team turning over? Who performs better in my team? And and what sort of influence is my leadership starting having on someone's engagement or someone's you know tenure in the business? Those type of insights they haven't had before, but they're going to start getting that. And I think that's going to be the next challenge for us to figure out is how do we coach and develop our leaders to not have their biases come into play because they will see and interpret that data the way that they're used to interpreting any sort of situation. You've touched really heavily on, on kind of two key themes that I'm glad you, you've brought up there, right? So the first one is you talked about data standardization, and I think that's super interesting, right? And there's lots of initiatives kind of in the like HR open standard space and things like that about trying to standardize the way that all of these products and teams and, and organizations gather this data and, and store it. I love that. And I think one of the things that gets me excited about my own business, but also your business that we work with and others is, is this idea of like wisdom of the crowds, right? And what I mean by this is like every new client we're adding makes the product better for everybody else in the long run, because obviously anonymously and in a sort of compliant and safe way, we're taking those insights and those learnings and that data and it allows us to start doing things like benchmarking and analytics comparisons and reporting and all these sorts of things. And it allows us to make the product better for everybody. And it allows us to say, hey, you're creating a role in this market, this salary, and this is your job description. But actually, your job description sucks and your sourcing strategy doesn't make sense and you're underpaying for this role relative to others. And it helps everybody do better, right? And I think that's going to be super exciting. And that only really works when there's some semblance of standardization across the board. So super happy that you talked about that. I think the second thing you're sort of alluding to beyond the kind of core bias thing is, this distribution of data and sort of a educating leaders, but also sort of moving HR from this reactive force to hopefully at some point in this proactive thing. And I think like we work with an organization and take no credit for this, by the way, but we work with an organization that did some awesome stuff from a sourcing perspective. And I think I've talked about this before, but they were essentially looking to expand from the UK into South America. And they're a big advertising organization looking to build out a big presence in that market. And they realize that really the defining thing that they, you know, they're an advertising agency, that what they're selling is creative people, right? And so they, what they, rather than trying to sort of reverse engineer, like where's the cheapest office space or where could we get good clients? What they instead did is took a big budget and spent 50,000 pounds, I think, in five different South American cities, 10,000 pounds each on recruitment, advertising campaigns and Facebook ads and job boards. And they basically just ran that campaign for a month and looked at what applicant quality they got and what the volume was like and what the caliber of people was like and what the cost base of those people were. And they used that data, which was a comparatively small amount of spend for an organization of this size to go, hey, well, we've determined that Sao Paulo, I'm making this up, but like Sao Paulo is the best city for us to expand into because although office space is cheaper in Chile and whatever, this is the place where all the creative people are and we know we can recruit well in this market and we know these people are going to churn good stuff out. And so they made their expansion decision in terms of location and everything else around their business based on where they could get the best quality people. And the reality is that that's just obvious. Like it's just a no-brainer thing to do, but nobody does it. And it's great if we can use the stuff you're talking about here to get that to leaders. So when people are making these expansion decisions and thinking about sales and marketing and everything else that the business does, 
they're using HR to help inform that decision and it not just be like, hey, HR team, go do this because we've made these decisions in isolation now. And I just get super excited about that. It's a bit sad, but like that, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning, right? Is the idea that people should be doing that and they are. Absolutely. And, and no, I, I agree. And, I, and that's what gets me out of bed as well. I think, you know, HR is still somewhat treated as administrative at certain points in time. And the reality is, is that HR have complete data sets on the entire employee workforce and what makes them tick and, and what makes them perform and how, you know, synchronized they are and, and what, you know, down points are. All of those different data points we're actually collecting and we're surfacing. So realistically, the organization's growth can really be promoted from HR's seed. And obviously, you know, there's there's a lot more that goes into that. You've got products that are being sold, you've got sales and marketing and, and you know, customer service and so on. But HR, I think, really have an opportunity in this day and age to take that next level up. They always say, okay, you know, HR have fought for that seat at the table and have got that seat at the table. That's all great and well, but what are they actually doing with that seat? Are they actually informing and educating and, and leading the business in terms of what the employees are experiencing and doing? And I think that's been really key. Obviously, d is, is a massive focus for all organizations as it should be. But I think that's been a really big key in terms of the transformation of businesses as we've become more decentralized, as we've started to work from home. You know, an organization, particularly law firms, law firms interest me a lot because you've seen them be very traditional, you know, in office, everything, everything has to be done from the office. They've gone completely online. How has that changed their business from the type of talent that they source, the type of cultural influence that now comes into those businesses? It's been very interesting to see. We work with a lot of law firms and it's been interesting to see that has particularly changed over the past two years. And in turn, how much more respected HR now is in that law firm environment. It's so funny. We also work with loads of law firms, not by choice originally. And to be honest, I was super critical of the industry in general for being overly traditional and very kind of suited and booted and all that sort of stuff. And I share exactly the same experience that over the past, let's say, two years, we've seen them kind of literally go from zero to hero in terms of workplace culture, in terms of embracing digital in terms of and it's been amazing it's like it's someone's turned the key and all of a sudden now they're the first people to work from home and they're the first people to change the way that they all look and feel in the office and they're the first people to redesign the space for collaboration and embrace they're now using tools to automate you know matter creation and document management and like all of they've literally gone from one spectrum to the other and it's amazing as i say it's like the first domino in the chain that's kind of knocked everything over and really unlocked all this stuff it's, it's just interesting that we've seen the same things from from sort of the other side of the coin right my sister bought a house about six months ago and we were talking about it and she said oh you know they sent through the docu sign and i went what i said a law firm actually sent through a document signing software <laughs> like you know it, it just it baffled me because i mean obviously i'd seen it a little bit but it's just funny how you know quickly they adapted and changed and it, working in those businesses must just be an absolute godsend for what it used to be because of really what has happened through the pandemic. No, for sure. And we love that transition, right? I think between us, we've unearthed a bunch of themes here and you've given us some kind of great guidance on data and best practice and what we should be focusing on and all of these sorts of things. I think there's so much there. The bit that always concerns me with all of these conversations, right, is it? I come back to the sort of foundational stuff. So to make all these changes, you need the data and you need the insights you need to understand it. To do all of that, you need the right tools, right? And so what we often see and what we often, and you know, we, we have a dedicated team, we work very closely with our clients to get these 
sort of results, right? But what we often see go wrong with software implementations is people go, we're going to buy this tool and they've had a flashy demo and they've seen Intelli and they love it and they can't wait to get the insights out the back of it. But they buy the thing and they start the implementation and what they are basically actually trying to do is just automate their existing, not very sensible processes or sort of, do you know what I mean? Like things are often sort of fall apart if they're not implemented, right? I'd, I'd love to just dig deeper from your experience in actually rolling out tools like this into organizations you know what should people be thinking about what should they absolutely not be doing just love some thoughts on that yeah for sure i mean early days for us you know when we were beta testing our our product across a couple key organizations one of them funnily enough was a law firm which is interesting but that really taught us or rob and i really early on that we can't get the implementations wrong and because of my background and focus around customer service in particular we really designed the business and made sure that our customer service teams or customer success was at the heart of the business. And a lot of people say, yep, that's, you know, that's us, that's similar to us. But realistically, every single department was branched off of customer success and every single department had a deliberate need and focus to connect back in to the customer facing teams just from an internal stakeholder perspective. So our entire product, for instance, was actually developed and built out of guidance from all the customer success team managers. And that really laid a a good framework in terms of where we then wanted to take the implementations. And what I mean by that is we felt that same sort of challenge where people were just putting in their paper-based processes or very clunky outdated processes. And because we built a tool that was incredibly customizable, the opportunity to rethink how you do HR in your business, particularly for organizations that were, you know, across multiple locations, had multiple departments with different needs or performance metrics, all those sort of things, they had typically just gone, well, you know what, we just do this in the Nexus spreadsheet, or we just do this on a paper form, so let's just load that in. And we were really fighting with them, not fighting, well, yeah, it was, <laughs> but we were really fighting with them and saying, you can do so much more now. So why don't you just rethink that? And, and ultimately, what we ended up coming to was we adopted a lot of design thinking methodology. So design thinking, obviously, you're, you're in the product development space, you know all about that. But we turned it on its head and, and put it at from a HR perspective. So, you know, running kickoffs on an implementation project, the very first thing that we do is we bring in their key stakeholders, you know, IT, payroll, finance, all of them into the room, even some of the key managers across the the organization and do pain point exercises, opportunity exercises, swimming lanes around current processes. So we were borrowing from product development or design development, that type of framework and pulling it into implementations obviously has gone through a lot of iterations and where it was you know, back then is definitely not what it's at today. Funnily enough, I was watching one of us um, customer service people do a, a kickoff uh, with the pain point exercises last night and it was it was quite cool to see how it had evolved because as the HR teams that we're working with are evolving and becoming more sophisticated around implementations and software they're clued up now and they know what they can and can't do and they know what's effective and so on so it's it's definitely helped to kind of bridge the two together but for us in, in particular I found that without design thinking the implementations that we ran would be easily 50% less successful. And it was just really because design thinking at its core was really about challenging your original thinking, challenging an original design of how something was done and thinking outside the box, but obviously cultivating a multitude of different opinions and, and thinking. Back then, HR created the process. You know, I'm in HR, I'll create however, how everyone should be on board in the business. What we were saying was, 
let your employees help you create how someone should be onboarded. Let that particular location take ownership of how they want their staff to be onboarded because you have the tools that can support that difference. So it was really just about designing that and, and breaking it down. No, sure. I mean, it makes sense. I think we think of things quite similarly. And I think it's interesting that you you talked about sort of your own experience and the impact that's had on that sort of implementation process. And you kind of went to your experience in customer service, whereas I kind of thought that your experience training as a teacher would be the most important prior aspect of that, right? Like we sort of think about our implementations is how can we educate our prospects without being arrogant? And what I mean by that is like, we think we've got a lot of value to add because we've worked with hundreds or even more organizations learn from their experiences. We kind of got this, again, wisdom of the crowd's understanding. If what well, we've seen someone else do this well, and why can't we replicate that in your organization? But we don't ever want to be so arrogant that we don't we don't take heed of why that process exists or you know the logic behind how that organization is doing things the way they're doing things, and we don't think we know better, right? And I think that teaching mechanism is often the hardest part. And if you look at the composition of our customer success team, it's often not people with huge amounts of customer service background, but it's people coming from industry or it's people coming from coaching jobs or it's people coming from things of that nature where they're very good at sort of listen and react and educate. And I sort of share your exact experience, basically. Like we worked really hard to try and take people on that journey. And we also have a super flexible product and that's a fantastic thing, but it's also sometimes a damaging thing because people can easily just go, well, let's just make this do what we already do, right? Rather than as a forcing agent for them to reevaluate. Exactly. And then they end up with the exact same outcome that they started with. It just might look a little better or it just might, you know, it's just faster, but it's the exact same outcome. But I'd be lying, Tom, if I said that I borrowed from my teaching experience. My first crack within a classroom was with a grade five class and I had five kids cry on me one day. And I, I just, I, I broke down. I didn't know what to do. They were all there. That for me was like, okay, I don't think I can have kids. But one of the design thinking methodologies that we do in particular is, you know, I, I encourage HR to always research design thinking and how they can apply. But one of them is this swim lanes concept. So just from an onboarding perspective, you know, who are all your key players on an onboarding? And even just jotting that down on a piece of paper does surprise some people and they go, oh, okay, you know, it's the employee, the supervisor and HR. And you can say, okay, what about finance and IT? What about buddy systems? What about the team? You know, the wider team, did you do any sort of rituals around that? So as they start to map that out, you know, it starts to create these swimming lanes and then they go through and they actually start to go, you know, before. So when you're offering a contract, you can go further outside of that, you know, when does the recruitment business case become generated and approved and so on. But and all the approval steps there, but just working all the way through all the different key players, each of their steps in, in what sequential order. Usually when we run them, I never forget this, we did this with a mining company once and the amount of steps that they had in there was just insane. And one of them, which was about 20 steps, so 20 people needed to be involved in this, was ordering uniforms. And it was because someone needed to get the right paper form, they needed to send it via, at this point in time, it was via the post. They needed to fill it out. Employee then sent it to the supervisor. The supervisor then would receive it and give it back to the uniform processing team that would get ordered, given to HR and so on. And so just seeing how a process can sometimes be inherited and just kept because it's easy to just keep that same process rather than thinking about, should we maybe change this? That's something that I, I see design thinking help with because when you lay it out in front of them, they go, oh, 
you're joking. We've been doing that for, <laughs> it's embarrassing sometimes, yeah. And that can be a quick, you know, little notification or, a, you know, just a quick fire of a survey off. So it's definitely been rewarding seeing organizations have that aha moment when they lay out a process and then they've literally halved it, sometimes you know, even three quarters of what it used to be, which has been great. But it's good for both sides, right? Like it's great for them to half their process or, or make it even faster than that because there's loads of admin savings and fundamentally they've saved some money. But it's also better for the other side of the table, right? It's better for the candidate. It's better for the person being on board. It's better for the manager or the employee. And so like it's good to have an impact on both sides of the equation. We've covered lots of ground here. I want to move to wrap up. I think one final question. We've talked a lot about these kind of thematic trends and the sort of evolution of the HR team and the direction we're going and all this opportunity that gathering all this data and standardizing it and reporting on it in an insightful way is going to have. What are you most excited about in terms of the direction of travel of your business and the product and the opportunity that exists in the market? Yeah, I think for us, a big focus at a marketplace level has been who we're working with. So at an integration type of scenario. So even obviously, you know, we work very close with Pinpoint and, and our products integrate beautifully with each other. I'm seeing more and more the value of a very sophisticated ecosystem within an organization, what that can actually do. And, you know, for us, anyone that's actually using an enterprise payroll system is, is we're very focused in on how are they using tools and software? Because when you need an enterprise payroll system, that doesn't necessarily mean you're an enterprise. You could be a 100, 200 headcount business, but your needs around processing payroll data has gotten that much more complex. And so what we're starting to find is the rest of that tech ecosystem doesn't actually stand up to it. And that in turn then affects HR and that has a flow on effect, obviously, into the employees. So I think for me, I'm starting to see so much value in that ecosystem approach and where we've got tools like Pinpoint and, you know, we're working with a company over in the UK, Cintra around payroll and what they're doing in those sort of areas it's exciting to see that HR very now actually have the access to best of breed tools rather than having that one-stop shop. And although you end up somewhat with a one-stop shop within that ecosystem, you've got best of breed tools and, and concepts in there that are actually, for the first time, I feel like are properly integrating with each other. And that in turn is obviously affecting the employee's experience. So I think we're in a really cool driving seat here with where we're taking the market. And I think HR and employees and, and even this, the changing of the buyer, you know, HR are not the only people that are interested in buying HR software now. It's actually starting to move into the leaders. People need tools and people want to be able to help their teams and build their part of the business. So I think that understanding that shift of buyer mentality and where the marketplace is going is, is something that I'm excited about. It's keeping me up at night, but I'm excited about it. Look, that's a great answer. And obviously, we love working with you guys too. I, I think in terms of just general narrative, though, everything that Glenn just said is absolutely spot on. And if you're working with vendors in the HR tech space or any software space that don't have a good view on ecosystem and partnerships and an API and all that sort of stuff, I'd really question why. And if you're buying HR software and you're not asking them what their view on ecosystem is and what their partnership structure looks like and what their plans around API and integrations look like, you're doing it wrong. There is no exception to that rule now, I think. So Really glad we ended on that and super, super strong narrative. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you as well. It's been a pleasure. Cool. If you're interested in learning more about Intelli, uh, check them out at www.intellihr.com. And if you'd like to keep up to date with Glenn, check him out on LinkedIn. He's got some great stuff there. We'll put the link to his profile in the comments. 
I think for everything else, if you want more great tales from the trenches and best practice people guidance, stay tuned to the Talent Revolution. We've got more great episodes like this coming every other Tuesday. Go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Oh, 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 oh